right, let's get into God's Word here together. And uh, we are in, in John chapter 11 today. And we're going to be talking about death and eternity. Not just death in general. I want to talk about your death. Well, now that's interesting, isn't it? We don't mind hearing or talking about death in the sort of the general sense, but we get a little unnerved when we're talking about our own death. Now, this is something that's interesting to us. And it's important to us because it's the great question that we each have to grapple with. We're all going to die someday. We know that. Uh, and yet we act really surprised when all of a sudden it seems like it might be looming. I never thought it would be me. And yet we know we're all going to die. And humanity down through the centuries has struggled to answer this question. What happens to me when I die? And there is a great deal of despair over death. In particular, our own death. As an example of this, I read Thomas Dubay, who gave a perspective on atheism and atheism's approach to the death question. He says this, For the thoughtful atheist, death must loom as a crushing catastrophe. Everything good, noble, beautiful, experienced throughout life is about to vanish. Not simply for a week or two, not only for a century, but forever. On the atheist premise, death is a nightmare unbroken by a dawn. Now that's a pretty discouraging statement. And I want to ask the question, is, is for the Christian, is death a nightmare unbroken by a dawn? Is death a crushing catastrophe? And it's my hope that today we all would leave here understanding how we can have hope when it comes to the death question. John 11. And this week in our I Met Jesus series, we are introduced to three people. So we're, and we're going to take them as a group and we're going to spend two weeks with these three people. Uh, and their lives and stories are so intertwined that it's, it'd be very difficult to take them independently. But we're introduced to them in John 11. Uh, look at verse 1. It says this, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now that Mary anointing is in the next chapter. We're not going to deal with that uh, today. But let's get figure out who these people are. And we begin with the most basic question. Typically when you meet somebody, like I met some people right before this service, and we got talking about where they were from. And they were from Michigan. Michigan people are welcome here in our church because I was born there. It's a great state. So where are, where are these three people from? So we have a map here of, of, uh, of Judea at the time. And, uh, okay, hold on one second. Somebody was playing with this. There we go. All right, so here you have Jerusalem right here. Notice that Bethany is just really a hop, skip, and a jump from Jerusalem, just under two miles away. In fact, the Mount of Olives is this little hill in between. So Bethany is very close to Jerusalem. 
Now that's important to the story. If you look in your Bibles in chapter 10, we have the narrative of Jesus having just been in Jerusalem and some really bad things happened. He made the claim that he and the Father, God the Father, were one. The Jews took this as a blasphemous statement, and it says in uh, in verse, let me give you the verse, in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, which was the favored method of execution in the day. They would pick up a bunch of stones and just start hurling them until the guy was dead. And so... They wanted, they nearly killed Jesus. Jesus gives a response, verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And so chapter 10 has a certain rated R violence in it. There was an attempted murder. There was an attempted grabbing and and, and beating, and who knows what else they would have done to him. And so the Jews tried to kill Jesus. That's the point in Jerusalem. What Jesus does is he gets out of Dodge. He gets out of Jerusalem. And the text says, we're not exactly sure where he went, but he went somewhere out in here. So quite a ways away. Why? Well, they were trying to kill him back here in Jerusalem. You might do the same thing if you had a group of people wanting to kill you. Now, verse 1 mentions these three by name. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And what is significant about them is stated in verse 5 where it says, uh, it says this, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. Now you might think to yourself, well, of course he loved them. He's Jesus. He loves everyone. Like the song says, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible uh, tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. So you say, of course he loved them. Actually, you know what we find out with Jesus? He was so much like us. He was fully human as well. And what is more human than having friends? Jesus had friends, special friends in his life. So it does, and yes, he loves everyone. And you could have asked Jesus, Jesus, do you have friends? And he would have, you know, if he said no, because I'm not allowed to love anyone more than anybody else, because the song says so, you know, that would be hard. We would wonder if he really understood what it was to be human, because to be human is to have friends. It's part of what makes life, uh, human life special. And so in, in Jesus' life and ministry, we see that he had friends, Peter, James, and John, for example, were three within the disciples that were kind of special to him. He took them in close to him in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and John, the writer of this gospel, calls himself in the gospel the disciple that Jesus loved. And so we see with Christ that he had relationships with people that were human, that were friendship. And these three definitely were that. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Jesus would go to their home. He would hang out there with them. All right, so let's talk about them very quickly, individually. We start with Martha, and we start with Martha because she is the oldest sister. And right away, some of you don't like her, right? Because she is the oldest of the three. Probably best known from Luke 10... A uh, little story where she was preoccupied with making preparations when Jesus was over at their house. 
And she was loved by Jesus. Martha. Then you have Mary, who is the younger sister. And now some of you don't like her either, right? The younger sister. And we see in Luke 10 this uh, fun interchange between Mary and Martha, where Jesus is there, there's preparations to be made, and Martha, being the oldest responsible one, because we know the oldest sister is always the responsible one, feeling the need to take care of things, is hustling and bustling around, making preparations. Mary, being the irresponsible younger sister, speaking as an oldest, (laughs) being the irresponsible youngest sister, is merely sitting at Jesus' feet. And so Martha bursts in to the room and says, Jesus, I'm busy doing all of this stuff, and Mary ain't helping me. Now, I know it's hard for you to believe that sisters would ever talk to each other or about each other in this manner, complaining about the behavior of the other. But that's what happened. And so, of course, if you know the story, Jesus actually commends Mary for doing the most important thing, which is to be near him teaching his teaching and all the rest. So it's kind of a fun little sisterly spat moment that we see in the story. And then, thirdly, we have... We have Lazarus, who is the youngest of the three. So you have girl, girl, boy. And that never bodes well for the boy, does it? To have two older sisters, no other, no other male siblings at all. He was doomed from the beginning. And some of you can relate to that probably here today. Two older sisters, you're carrying a purse with you today, no doubt. So he's the youngest of the three. Uh, there is no record of anything that he said in all of Scripture. Uh, and he dies in the story. And then, as I say there, actually you'll have to come back next week to find out what happens. But something very special happens to Lazarus. And he also loved by Jesus. Now what we can, what we can love about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is... We see them in their humanity. We see them, and who do they look a lot like? Don't you think? Sisters not getting along, little brother in tow, flawed people, in other words. Flawed people like who? Like us. And yet, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and called them friends. I love that point. Gives me hope that maybe Jesus is my friend too. Because if he can love Martha, he can love me. All right, let's get into the story of what happens here. And the story uh, kicks off here in verse 3. It's what, here's what it says. So the sisters sent to him saying... Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, does that sound like anything we've heard recently? Do you remember last week we had the blind man? And the disciples see the blind man along the road. And do they have compassion for him? Not really. What do they want to do? They want to figure out who's to blame for his blindness. And Jesus says he's not blind because of sin he did. He's not blind because of sin his parents did. He is blind so that the work of God might be displayed through him. 
And we have Jesus saying almost the same thing here about Lazarus's illness. Lazarus is sick. Why is he sick? So that the Son of God might be glorified through him and the illness. If we had more time, I would, I would talk more about that. Because we have many people in our church who are sick and who have disease and have illness and have loved ones who have the same. And we think to ourselves, why has this happened? What is the purpose behind it? And here we have Jesus again saying that even human illness and disease is something that God is glorified through. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again. Emphasis added to help you understand what they're saying. They're remembering what just happened in chapter 10. They tried to kill you. And now you want to go back there? Why would you want to go back there? We don't understand. So here we have now, did you see what happened? I don't know if you followed that. Jesus gets the news. Lazarus is sick. He loves Lazarus. What would you expect his love to then mean? He would drop everything, skedaddle over to Judea, take care of the problem, be on his way. But he doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? It says that he waited how long? Two days. Again, I don't have time for this, but I have to say, we see here in this interchange that Jesus is absolutely in control of what's going on. He is not fretting. He is not worrying. He is, he is in control. He knows what is going to happen. He knows what that illness is going to lead to. He knows what that illness is going to lead to and what is going to lead to something else that I don't want to spoil the fun for in the story. You got to come back next week. But I want to say this pastorally, my dear friends, Jesus waited two days. The sisters wanted him to come right away. They asked him to come. They asked him, they wanted him to heal him. And I just think we must have some of you, and you're in your two days of waiting. You've asked Jesus, you've asked God for help, you've cried out to him. You're going to the doctor, you're doing the things you can, but you know God is the healer and you're asking for him and nothing's happening. You're in your season of waiting. And when we're waiting and nothing seems to be happening, what do we start to ask ourselves? God, do you really love me? Maybe God isn't actually in control. I've prayed in Jesus' name. I've done everything I can. And we can think to ourselves that maybe something has gone wrong. Nothing went wrong here, did it? It was happening exactly the way that God wanted it to. And you might be sitting in a season of two days of waiting right now. And I want to encourage you from the text today. There is no waiting that God brings in our life that is without a purpose. All right, so we move on. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. In other words, what's better for him than for him to be asleep? Let him sleep. Let's stay over here where it's safe. We don't need to go there. Remember the stones. I'm adding, but that's kind of what's going on here. 
Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. And I've always been curious about that last statement. I'm not sure how to read it. He either means it this way. uh, He's saying something like, you know, uh, fatalistically, well, we might as well die and get it over with. Or he's saying it courageously. Let us go with him and die if we must. I don't know which it is one way or the other. Either way, look what happens. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. All right, so here now we are introduced to some of the funeral customs of the day. And so we need to understand what's going on here. First of all, they would bury the person the day he died. Say there was no embalming, there was no kind of, you know, funeral home preparation. You die, you're buried right away. So for him to have been in the tomb for four days means that he has been dead for four days. On top of that, after you've buried the body, now the actual sort of like funeral service begins and the mourning and the grieving and The custom of the Jews was that people would come in. In fact, they would sometimes even hire professional grievers to come in who would sit with the family, would cry, would, you know, help them and and all the rest. Now, why did Jesus wait four days? Is this fourth day important? And indeed it is. Here's why. There was a common belief in the day, the Bible doesn't teach this, so don't build a theology on this, but the the common thinking of the day was that when somebody dies, his or her spirit hovers near the body for three days. Okay? Once it sees the body decomposing, then it leaves and goes to God. Again, the Bible doesn't teach that, but that was the understanding of of the Jews in the day. And so the fact that Jesus waits until the fourth day means... That that spirit is long gone and what he's going to do here makes it even, it makes it even more incredible because in the Jewish understanding, there's no possibility of this again. Okay. So fourth day he arrives and now we have this conversation between Martha, the oldest sister and Jesus. Look at verse 21. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, uh, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. All right. So Jesus makes his way, gets back to Bethany. 
Mary stays in the house. Martha goes rushing out when she hears that Jesus is there. And she comes rushing up to him, no doubt, breaking out in in grieving tears. And she says to him, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Now, why did she say that? Because she had no doubt seen Jesus perform the miracles, might have seen the blind man that he made to see, might have, who knows, water to wine, whatever it is. She knew that Jesus was a healer. And so Mary and Martha, they're so hoping that Jesus will come and take care of the problem. And when Lazarus died, to them, this was disastrous for so many reasons. But one is, is that it could have so easily been averted if only Jesus had been here. And so Martha comes up and expresses this to Jesus. I thought you loved us. And I wonder if this is actually all that unusual. What do we oftentimes say when a loved one in our life dies? We, we ask questions like this, don't we? Jesus, why did this have to happen? I mean, I prayed. I fasted. I asked you to bring healing. I trusted you. And yet our loved one is dead. And I think that we see in Martha somebody just like us, don't we? Believing that something could have happened, but it didn't. Martha's question, I thought you loved us. I thought we were special to you. And I want you to see in Jesus' response here, he doesn't rebuke her for her bad theology. He doesn't doesn't challenge her. What does Jesus do? Jesus knew, listen now, because we're getting to the heart of the matter here today. Jesus knew what Martha needed. And it was the same thing that the woman, the the thirsty woman at the well needed. And it's the same thing that the 15,000 on the hillside uh, without a McDonald's in sight needed. And it's the same thing that the blind man uh, along the path needed. What each of them needed was not what was apparently on the surface that was needed. Right? The woman at the well did not need physical water. The 15,000 at the hillside did not need Uh, physical bread and the blind man did not need to be healed of his blindness what each of them needed is the same thing that martha needed and it's this they needed to realize who he is and all the miracles that he's done that we've seen so far were merely an unveiling of the glory of who he is so that in the thirsting of the woman at the well and the hungry fifteen thousand and the blind man He might display that he is living water, bread of life, light of the world. They needed to realize the glory and the majesty, his true personhood, the son of God. And Martha did not begin to realize who she was dealing with here. Jesus says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha hears those words and her mind interprets those words through the grid of the common understanding of the day, which was, yet yes, there is a final resurrection, but it doesn't happen for a long time. It happens at the end of the story. It happens at the final consummation. And so she took Jesus' comments to, uh, like, like she took the comments, no doubt, of the other mourners who probably came to her and said, You will see him again. Your brother will rise again. And don't we do the same thing, basically? Have you been to a Christian funeral or a viewing? 
Isn't it a little hard as you're waiting in line, you're thinking, what am I going to say to the person once I get up there, right? And we search for some Christian truth that will comfort them and inspire them. And it's awkward for everybody. We all know that, right? But don't we say things to one another like this? She's in a better place. He's at peace. Or the very common, you will see her again. And so the person with the Christian understanding of what happens in the story, who's grieving, hears that and thinks to themselves, yes, I will see her again. I will see him again. When Jesus comes back at the resurrection, I will see this person again. But it's someday. It's kind of in a murky future. There's a hope to it, and it's a real hope. I'm not minimizing any of these statements. But we do the same thing that Martha did. We hear something like that, and we think, yeah, someday in the future. But Jesus isn't a normal person attending a visitation, is he? And so when he says to Martha, you will, that your brother will rise again, what Martha doesn't realize is what he means by that. She thinks someday, and Jesus is sitting there going, today, like right now, come on. Again, it's the unveiling of the glory of Christ. Martha doesn't realize his true personhood, his true power. She has no idea that the one who turned the water to wine made the blind to see also can summon the soul, the real person who is dead, back to their body and to raise that body back to life. She has no idea that he can do that. In fact, I think Jesus must have thought things like this. My dear Martha, even after all this time, you have little idea who I am and what I can do and what I mean when I say your brother will rise again. As D.A. Carson says over this, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. And friends, it always comes back to this. It always comes back to what we believe, who Christ is, his true nature, his true glory. Do we realize who we're dealing with here? Do we realize he is God? And so then he says this famous statement in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The I am statements of Jesus. To the woman at the well, he is living water. To the 15,000 on the hillside, he is bread of life. To the blind man along the path, he is the light of the world. And he stands next to a grave with a sister who's grieving and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. That's power, my friends. That is power. In fact, look at the statement that he makes here. It's absolutely radical. Let's just walk through it. First of all, I, okay, first person pronoun. He's talking about himself. I am present tense. 
It's not was, I was the resurrection and the life, but I'm not anymore. It's not future tense, I will be the resurrection and the life someday. It is present tense, right now. This is a reality as I stand next to his grave, I am the resurrection and the life. And then, let's talk about resurrection and life. Which if you notice in that verse, there are two clauses on the second part of the verse that basically unpack these two words in sequence. So he says, I am the resurrection. And then says, though he die, yet shall he live. That's a pretty good definition of what a resurrection is, don't you think? I think so. And then life, which he defines as everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So resurrection brings us back to life. Life, which is shorthand for eternal life, is the sustaining power of Jesus after he has brought us back to life. And don't we need both of those? I mean, if Jesus says, you know what? I am the life. But he can't bring us back to life. What good is it, right? I'm dead. I need somebody who can bring me back to life. But let's say he's just the resurrection and he's not the life. What good is that? I'm brought back to life. And guess what happens then? I die again. What do dying people like us need? We need somebody who can bring us back to life after we die. And then after the resurrection, who can give us a sustaining life. Who can keep us alive forever. I am the resurrection, bring us back to life. And the life, sustaining life forever. It's exactly what sinful, dying people like us need. And Jesus says, I'm that. I am that. And the condition clause for all of this is whoever believes. Believes what? Believes who? Believes in me. So let's put this all together then. What is he saying here? Jesus is, not was or will be, he is presently now. The one in whom resides the power to bring back the dead after they have died. And to sustain that life forever conditioned upon that person believing in him. That is the statement as best I can explain it. And then he asked this question, Martha, do you believe this? And I think today... He asked the same question to each one of us personally here. Do you believe this? And it's to that I'd like to talk finally here today. What does that mean? And what about that claim today? I oftentimes think about the different makeup of a Sunday that we have. Because here as I look around, I know that we have different groups of people here. We definitely have groups of people. This is like, this is like uh, meat to the wolves. Christians who love this and treasure this and believe this. And so as we talk about Jesus being the resurrection, your heart is stirred on this truth. It is the gospel to you. You love it. Thank God for you. I know that every single service that we have here, we have another group of people that I would maybe put into the kind of seeking the truth category. They're interested in the claims of Christianity. You have a friend or family member who's pumped up about Jesus, and you're like, okay, I'll go. Go check it out. See what this is all about. You're interested mildly or majorly. 
and you're wondering what is really the truth. I want to know the truth. And then we have a third group here uh, that I would probably put into the skeptic crowd. You're looking at people studying the Bible, and you're like, I don't understand that. And you don't really get the, you don't understand what the whole big deal is all about here for us. And I would bet all, in this room, everybody here is vaguely in one of those three categories. And here's what I want to say to the seeker and the skeptic today. What I don't get about maybe your perspective is this, is that Jesus is universally admired around the world. The religions of the world admire him. And even an atheist would acknowledge that his life was unique and special and transformational to the entire course of world history. And so everybody admires Jesus, and you probably do to some extent. And yet... He's making a statement like this one, which is either absolute lunacy, the statement of a madman, or it is the statement of God. It cannot be anything but those two. And what I want to say to you tenderly is Jesus polarizes people from a distance. You know, from a distance, Jesus looks good, right? Nice man, did good things and all that. When you get up close and you actually see the things that Jesus said, it polarizes people because he forces us to either actually believe a, an incredible radical statement like this or to be uh, repelled from him because it's so crazy. Who says, I am somebody who can bring the dead back to life and then give to them life without end? Who says that kind of thing? And further makes the statement, if you believe in me, this will be true for you. You cannot simply admire Jesus. You will either love him or you will hate him. And he said the same. If you will get up close and actually see what he taught. And I would like to submit to you that from a close perspective, this is believable. And why it is believable, we'll get into more next week. Because he's going to do something radical to prove that what he is saying is true. I'd like to ask you to come back next week. But I want to point out to you that it is either lunacy or it is redemptive. And like Martha, Jesus says to each of us today, what do you believe? What do you believe? Second thing is the promise that Jesus is making here is fantastic. He is saying here, he's promising to whoever believes in him, you will have an indestructible life. You will never, ever die. Now, that's really good news to dying people, isn't it? And I think everybody here falls into that category. You will never die. Now, skeptics go in here, I've been to Christian funerals. I know that they die. Yes, yes, we die. The Bible acknowledges that and Jesus acknowledges that. In fact, Jesus himself died. What he is talking about here in terms of the indestructible life is not this physical body that is dying. He is talking about the true self, 
the real us, the person inside, the you, your personality, your life story, your memories, the things that you find beautiful, the relationships that you treasure. This actual you, God, Jesus says, that will never end. That is the essence of eternal life. He is promising for those who believe in him, our lives will never end. And for dying people, that's really good news. It is hope. It is hope. Because we are all dying. We are getting old and decrepit. I'm talking about you. I am talking about you. I'm talking about me too. I think I tore the meniscus in my other knee on Monday. How's that? And you're all like, another six months of sermon illustrations about your surgery. (laughs) Yes, and you'll like it, all right? (laughs) I've told a few people, they're like, well, you know, Steve, maybe it's time for you to acknowledge. I'm like, don't even say that. (laughs) Bite your tongue right now. And yet, if we're honest, we're all getting old. We're all going to die. And as I began... For the atheist, what is death? It is a catastrophe. It is the loss of everything valued in life. Not just for a day or a month or a century, but forever. You want to talk about despair? Live by that worldview. The absence of everything, including everything I value, everything I want, everything I enjoy, every love of my life, gone. Every relationship forever gone and me gone that's despair I was recently asked by a high school in Illinois that is one of their young people committed suicide and they asked me if I would come in and would address a joint session of this entire student body and all of their faculty dealing with the subject of suicide. They said, but the condition is, is that you're not allowed to say anything about God, Jesus, faith, or anything related to that. Hmm. So what do you say then? What do you say? I said... I don't think I can do that. And I declined the offer. But I'm not at an Illinois high school right now. I'm with you, and I can say whatever I want to. <laughs> and I don't know of any other source of hope than I am the resurrection and the life. Where else do you go? Really? That is why this is just a shining beam of light into the darkness of a dying world. He shouts into this world, I will bring you back to life and I will give you life without end. And that is good news for dying people. There is hope in him. And the question, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? More on this next week. I'm going to ask you to stand right now with me, if you would, please.